Well, Friday, and Friday means only one thing. Well, I guess it means two things. The weekend is coming, but it's also time for Inside EMS. And as always, I am excited to be here with you. My name is Chris Sabalero. Pulsera is the proud sponsor of this episode of the Inside EMS podcast. Learn how you can create a robust community paramedicine program at www.pulsera.com slash EMS. Here he is. I know, I know that you guys are waiting to hear his voice. Our good friend, Kelly Grayson, KG. Hey, brother. How's it going? It's been an interesting week. It's been. Uh, uh, yes, it has. I've got uh, too many things going on, too many things in the fire. Uh, I do want to plug something that uh, I've been working on, and usually I don't do this, but uh, I have actually started an online radio station, Kelly. Oh, really? And, and are you are you playing the, the biggest hits? <laughs> I am playing the biggest hits from the 70s, the 80s, and 90s. <laughs> it is, but I will tell you that this is a leadership talk radio station. And leadership shows will start on September, the week of the September 6th. Right now, we are playing 70s and 80s and 90s music. You know, I've been working in the leadership development space for some time, uh, Kelly. And um, now I really want to be able to help grow the people that are around commercial free music uh, for a while, probably the beginning of the year. And then uh, leadership talks. We have some really great hosts that are going to bring you their leadership expertise. Rob Lawrence, our international correspondent, is taking a show on that station as well. And I'm excited to work with him. Ernie Rodriguez, who was the former chief of Austin Travis County EMS, uh, one of my mentors in leadership, is going to be joining us as well. You may know McCara Trusty, who worked with... Yeah. Uh, who worked with MedStar as well. So I wanted my EMS peers to be part of this project, but go ahead and follow us on Facebook at uh, KLDR online, and it'll give you all the information. But I just wanted to be able to share that with the listeners, because when we think about our professional development, our personal development, it's one of the things that we neglect. And I wanted to be able to create a new resource for people that they were able to grow in their personal and professional lives. Well, that's, that's congratulations, man. I want our listeners to, to, uh, realize, uh, what, what name was prominently left out of that murderer's row of, of talent he had lined up. I'm, I'm really feeling love over here. Several era. Well, we talked about leadership knowledge, <laughs> leadership knowledge. So, um, well then, then you need a new nickname. You're now going to be the Dr. Johnny fever of EMS. <laughs> That's awesome. But uh, I think, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, development, th today's topic really has to deal with some of our development. And, you know, mm -hmm. we think about the number one call that gives EMS providers the most trepidation. And uh, we all know what it is without having identify it when we talk about pediatrics. But Kelly, I'm going to let you set up the topic for today so we can get into some of the discussion. Yeah, and, and one of the things in EMS is we, we, we tend to, we may advance in, in some areas and, and uh, progress in our, our knowledge and level of care. And some things remain stagnant. And pediatric care, uh, how we view pediatric care is one of those things. Uh, so we're going to call this, this uh, episode uh, Pediatric Cardiac Arrest, How Everybody's Doing It Wrong. And what brought this to mind is a couple of uh, articles on EMS-1 uh, that came out this week. Uh, one of them is out-of-hospital pediatric cardiac arrest. Uh, <clears throat> and the other one is called EMS treatment of pediatric cardiac arrest. The, uh, 
both of them kind of qu- call into question our current practices in managing pediatric out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and how the, the paradigm has shifted uh, in, in relation to the, the available evidence and how we are starting to change the way we address pediatric cardiac arrest in the field and move it more towards something that approaches our, our treatment of adult cardiac arrest. Chris, in your, in your career and history, what, how have you always treated pediatric cardiac arrest? Yeah. I mean, load really, and go, scoop and scoot kind of thing. Yeah. I was, I was one of the scoop and, and scoop and run kind of people. I mean, I can remember Kelly scooping up a, a pediatric patient doing CPR with them in my arms and actually doing mouth to mouth until I was able to get to the ambulance. I mean, so it wasn't even time to, you know, put anything down. It was taking the kid from the firefighter, um, you know, mouth to mouth resuscitation on the way to the ambulance with chest compression, laying them on the stretcher and going to work. And, um, you know, Dr. Antevi, who we've had on the show, Peter Antevi, um, talks about, uh, we needed to stop and slow down and we needed to be able to think about how we were going to take care of that patient and, uh, you know, get an airway, get a, get an IV, get a round of drugs in and really kind of survey the area. But I think here's the challenge that I want to be able to touch on. And again, some great articles, EMS one this week, pre-hospital pediatric cardiac arrest, should children be treated like small adults? Uh, we've heard that they're not small adults, but now the, the changes, we need to start thinking about them as small adults. And that's come, that article was written by our friends at NAEMSP. And then the one that I really enjoyed reading again, out of hospital pediatric cardiac arrest management was written by David Wright. And I, I really encourage everybody out there, even if you're comfortable with your pediatric skills, to go ahead and read those articles. But I want to go ahead and touch on just a couple of things before we get into this discussion. As we mentioned, pediatric calls give people, EMS providers, the most trepidation. And it's because maybe we didn't get enough training in school. It's because we don't see those um, we don't see those calls more most often. And when they happen, you know, we really have to go back to our knowledge, but here's what I want to challenge you on. And this is what I challenge all my paramedics on, uh, anytime that we talk about this topic. If you know that pediatrics is a weakness for you, what are you doing to fix it? Number two, if you're a leader in the EMS field, and you know that the most trepidatious call that we have are pediatric calls, what are you doing to help your providers become strong in taking care of that special population? If we know it's a weakness and we're not doing anything to help our providers, we're just as culpable as they are when those calls go south. So those are the two things that I want to come out of this show. One is make that strength, make that weakness a strength. Number two is if you're a leader in an organization, develop the processes to help those come into strengths. But Kelly, how do, how do you handle arrests, pediatric well, arrests? Uh, um, there is, there's often a conflict by what I think is appropriate given the current research and data available and the protocols and the protocols tend to lag behind. However, uh, one one big gap we often see, or I often see in, in clinical practice, is there is sometimes a disconnect between what the protocol actually says and how the protocol is interpreted 
by people who would prefer not to deal with families and not to do a bunch of stuff on scene. And what do you mean by that? Scoop and scoop. What do you mean Meaning by that? that you, you always hear, well, the protocol says we have to do this and, and, and we, we, uh, uh, we have to transport our pediatric cardiac arrest and, and they interpret that to mean scoop and run. Uh, when the protocol actually says you just can't terminate pediatric arrests in the field and you need to transport them, it doesn't it doesn't put a scene time uh, limit on you. And and the data seems to support that. You know, and I found it interesting. This uh, the what you said, uh, make your weakness your strength. That That's one of your mantras that has been through this uh, uh, that I've noted uh, throughout our, our relationship together is, is you say, you know, what are you, what are your weaknesses and turn them into strengths? It's classic SWOT analysis, your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And that is, I think, Chris, something that uh, a stellar EMS provider needs a healthy dose of introspection. They need to be able to look at themselves critically and say, you know, some things I could be better at and let's see if we can turn that around. And, and one of the things that we, we often have problems with is pediatrics. Uh, in, in every survey of EMS providers you read, uh, it's a common theme. Not enough initial education, not enough continuing education, uh, um, inadequate opportunities for, for pediatric certification classes. Plus, there's a psychological aspect. When you work a code on an 87-year-old woman, you can tell yourself that you're going to work it to the best of your ability, but if it doesn't work out, you know, that, that ultimately you were probably saving, trying to save his heart that was too sick to live and she had a good life and so on and so forth. But the stakes are higher when you're doing the same thing on a five-year-old who has uh, uh, potentially a full productive life ahead of him. Uh, and, and everyone involved realizes that. But I follow the Tao of Antevi, uh, which says, um, why don't we give the kids the same fighting chance of survival that we give adults? And a lot of people take that, uh, fail to take that into consideration. And these two articles tend to support that. Uh, we, we've talked in our podcast in the past about, um, uh, about the, uh, the study that, that associated higher survival rates with more interventions uh, performed on scene. And there have been uh, a number of other studies uh, that are cited here, one by, uh, by Banerjee and his colleagues, um, talking about the, uh, the number of, uh, the number of uh, uh, interventions performed on scene, a prospective study, that uh, <clears throat> the ROSC rate in this study, in, in Banerjee's study in, in 2019, um, they hypothesized that rapid transport was a disservice to patient care because critical interventions would have to be performed in route. And we all know that doing something as simple as CPR compressions in a moving ambulance sucks, and we really shouldn't be doing it unless we absolutely have to. Um, but other things that are more, um, more uh, um, intricate skills to perform, like intraosseous access and airway access and, and administration of, of different medications, uh, could also benefit from b doing that earlier and on scene. So they hypothesized that the uh, they could give the uh, medics a better chance of success with uh, chest compressions, airway, vascular access, and meds. And they implemented a new protocol that mandated intraosseous access, eye gel placement, and administration of epinephrine before initiating transport. And over that four-year period, uh, the ROSC rate 
skyrocketed from 5.3% to 30.4%, and their neurologically intact outcomes increased from 0% to 23.2%. This is huge. Uh, they, they somewhat understatedly say uh, this is statistically significant. It's more than just statistically significant. It's, it's, it's huge. Um, but they also noted that, that all, these interventions performed on scene did not significantly increase the amount of on-scene time. And one of the things I think that, that we fail to recognize in pediatric cardiac arrest is the same thing that we've known for some time in adult cardiac arrest, that there is not much that an emergency department can do that a sufficiently skilled and equipped ALS EMS crew cannot do just as well at least for the uncomplicated medical cardiac arrest. And, and we still have this, this conceit that, that we're, or this belief that uh, we need to transport and get them to the experts when uh, we in fact are the experts at resuscitation and we need to be practicing that. Yeah. I think that that's a great overview. And I think some of the things that we need to be able to look at is our practice and how we do this. I think my, my biggest question now is why aren't we doing that? Or why haven't we been doing that? Is it the fact Kelly, that we uh, need to get them to definitive care um, because we don't, uh, you know, we don't have all the answers in the field and we are the I, definitive care. <laughs> and I, I'm going to say, I don't know that that's the answer, but how much of this is driven on the fact that the healthcare world knows that EMS is not comfortable with dealing with pediatric arrests and the people who are writing the protocols, the medical directors, and, you know, sometimes the medical boards that are made up of, uh, area, you know, area heads of, uh, the heads of the area ERs are saying, let's get those pediatric patients to the hospital. But I, I think that the challenge first is, are we able to stay and work on scene with that pediatric patient in the environment that we're in? with the current skill set of the paramedics. And I think it's more of a lack or a feel of uh, low confidence mm -hmm. more than it is the ability to say, I can work this kid right here and, and get a, uh, you know, get a return of spontaneous circulation if I don't have to worry about moving. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, I call this um, uh, the bigotry of low expectations. Uh, we don't do many people. We, we, don't feel comfortable with pediatric interventions on scene and, and, and doing pediatric cardiac arrest resuscitation. Therefore, uh, we transport these people and do minimal care uh, and do the, the courtesy code, God forbid, uh, 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 all too often, uh, and try to, enter, uh, to do these interventions in route where it's quite difficult to do. But and the, as but a the result, problem, Kelly, we never I want to get good enough to be confident at it. But I want to cut because you off. We, we put the go ahead. But isn't it because we're worried about staying on scene is because we're worried about looking like we don't know what the hell we're doing because we're not up on what the skill should be of a of a pediatric intubation tube, uh, you know, of what the size of a pediatric intubation tube is or what the first round of epi is. One of the things that I used to do all the time when we were en route to a cardiac arrest was I would look in my little flip book because I didn't have it memorized. I would look in my little flip book because they would say three-year-old possible cardiac or wherever there is they're dispatching to. And I would say the ET tube is this uh, first round of epi is this second round of epi is this. 
So we knew as a team where we were going mm-hmm. with that. But isn't it doesn't it come down to the fact of now we're in a home with a pediatric patient and because we're not going to feel comfortable, we're going to look stupid like we don't know what the heck we're doing? No. The, yeah, but that was exactly my point. We, we don't feel comfortable with this. We feel self-conscious performing these pediatric skills because we're unsure of ourselves. Therefore, we default to rapid transport. And doing and what of those skills we do attempt to perform, we do under suboptimal conditions, and as a result, have suboptimal results and success rates. And as a result, we never gain the competency that is required to develop confidence. Uh, if we just, first of all, we need to quit telling ourselves that pediatric patients are different. We know that they're different, but the mindset that it's a, it's a kid, it's totally different, totally screws up our, our uh, confidence. Uh, these are skills that we know how to perform. We know how to insert an IV or IO needle. We know how to administer medications. We know how to manage an airway. We know how to shock. We know how to pace. We know how to do chest compressions. These are not unusual skills. We're just performing them on a slightly different patient populace. And the only things that is radically different are drug dosages and and defibrillation settings, of which anytime we have, we we talk so much about cognitive offloading in in our our daily tasks so that we can focus on problem solving. Well, Well, pediatric patients were the original patients where we had to practice cognitive offloading. Use your cheat sheet, use a Braslow tape, use even better a hand heavy card so you can actually pre-game and, and do what you said uh, before you even arrive at the bedside or at, at the patient's side. You know what the medication dose is going to be based on their age, what their, the ET tube size and depth is, what the jewel settings for defibrillation or cardioversion are going to be. You know those things before you even get there. So you can do all the things that help lead to success in a smooth running code in an adult. You can pregame and plan your steps. But we don't do that because we tell people and we foster this myth that pediatric patients are a special case. If we just practice the way we do ACLS, on PALS, then we'd have better success at it. So Kelly, let's go ahead and take a quick break and uh, go ahead and read that mid-show break for us. But on the other side of this, I want to ask you this question. What are the answers now? You're running an EMS system. Usually you put me into the leadership role and you say, Chris, as a leader, what are you going to do? I'm going to put you in the leadership role. And I say, you're leading an EMS organization. And now you've got to be able to change this paradigm. What do you do? But before we do that, go ahead and hit us with the mid-show read. Okay. Whether community paramedicine or the routine transport from COVID-19 to STEMI to behavioral health, from the scene of a car crash in your city to a patient's living room in rural Montana, Pulsara connects you in real time with any member of the care team. Pulsara makes communicating across organizations and regions easy for any patient type. Simply create a dedicated patient channel, build your team, and communicate in a way that's best for your team and the patient case. For more information, visit pulsara.com EMS. That's P-U-L-S-A-R-A dot com EMS. 
All right, Kelly, I think I set you up really well with this question. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. My, my, my heart is racing. I'm, I'm all verklempt. I'm waiting for this answer that you have. <laughs> you, you know, you talk about when your uh, legion of flying monkeys take over to blah, blah, blah. This is your yeah. chance now. So what do you do now? How do we take this? Or whether you're going to give information to a, 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 just a paramedic, or now you're going to actually set a program or a process inside an organization, how do you fix this? problem i think we fix this problem the way i would suggest we fix any any clinical problem in ems by focusing on the medicine rather than the perception and and if we take a hard look at the clinical data it's 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 pretty clear cut that more interventions and greater scene time and losing this scoop and run load and go process uh, is beneficial for the patients. There, there's a there's a, a growing body of research, a uh, pretty robust uh, amount of research already that demonstrates that. Uh, so if we focus on the medicine and do as uh, and and implement best practices for pediatric cardiac arrest similar to what we do in adult arrest, then we're going to gain proficiency. We're going to gain confidence and people's perception, the public's perception of what we're doing, uh, our perception of what we're doing is going to improve. Um, I, it's, it's been a long time since I've worked in adult cardiac arrest when uh, people didn't understand why we weren't transporting a patient to the hospital. Uh, I, that's, that's a conversation I don't have to have that much anymore because they understand, uh, they've either seen it or, or heard of it, seen it on, on the television or whatever, or they accept what I tell them when I say that the patient's best shot at survival is us working them right there on the living room floor, uh, until we get a pulse back. But we don't foster that expectation in the public in the pediatric cardiac arrest. Now, the one thing that is different there that, uh, I, uh, and the study, uh, one of the articles points to this is that there still is not a great deal of, uh, of evidence to support field termination for pediatric arrest. So if I were to change this, I would mandate a certain amount of interventions, just like in, uh, Banerjee's, uh, study and, uh, their experimental protocol, uh, I would uh, mandate airway access, uh, um, CPR compressions, uh, IO access, and one round of epinephrine before transport. And I might even say you must, you should spend a, a minimum of 20 minutes on scene or 30 minutes on scene uh, before you transport the patient. Um, but I would not have a field termination protocol because in, in a number of the studies, uh, there was no definitive link uh, or there was no definitive difference in outcomes between the patients who had some sort of ALS uh, field termination criteria uh, and the patients who didn't. So that's going to need more study in the, in the pediatric population. Uh, what, what criteria could we use for field termination? Uh, because it's apparent from a couple of studies that, that uh, adult criteria don't necessarily make a big difference uh, in the pediatric patients. Um, but that's what I would do. I would, I would simply focus on the medicine and empower people to do the things in ACLS uh, or to do the things in, in pediatric advanced life support and pediatric resuscitation that we're already doing in ACLS and, and uh, empower them to, to uh, work the code in front of the family like they do when they work grandma in front of the family um, with the caveat that when we do transport, I'm a heck of a lot more accepting 
of allowing a parent or a family member in the back of my ambulance while I'm transporting a pediatric cardiac arrest to the hospital uh, than I am most other places. Uh, first of all, I'm not transporting many adults to the hospital that are still a working code, um, but I'm really reluctant uh, to separate a mother or father from their child uh, when I'm working on them. And, and more than a few times uh, have I allowed them to get in the back of the ambulance and hold their child's hand while we're working the code. I think that's the only human thing to do. And I think that any paramedic who worth his salt, who can judge people fairly well, knows before they step in the back of the rig, who's going to flip out and interfere with care and who's going to hold it together. That's a roll of the dice, though, man. You got a roll of the dice. I don't think it's a roll of the dice. You got somebody's kid who is. I mean, I have I I, I have seen parents who have been inconsolable uh, when their kids are in cardiac. We we just we just don't know that. I I, I, I can't. You're missing the point, though. Uh, give me the I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna vehemently disagree with you here. If okay, you well, give me it. This, Let me hear it. If you have worked this resuscitation on scene for say 20 minutes with the parents there, you know after 20 minutes whether they're going to hold it together or whether they're going to continue to be a problem. You know before you pick the pa- put the patient on the stretcher and load them in the ambulance whether the parent will be safe in the back of the ambulance or not safe. They're not going to hold it together for 20 plus minutes and then flip out while the wheels are rolling. You either know it before you load them, or you or uh, and and make your 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 decision accordingly. So, so do you? I, I hardly think that the parent is going to do something uncharacteristic that they haven't displayed while I was working the baby in their crib or in yeah. their nursery floor. Well, I did misunderstand you then. So, but do, have you denied family members riding in pediatric arrest in the compartment to the hospital? No, no. Uh, but but that's not to say that I would not. Uh, you know, it has to be a safety decision, whether you think it's going to be therapeutic for the, the family um, to allow them to go. Uh, but no, I haven't denied a parent the right to, to stay with their child while I was working resuscitation in route to the hospital. Uh, but I attributed that to I'm pretty good at talking to people, Chris. And, yep. and I, uh, I have a, a pretty good command presence on scene and I can calm people. And, and there's, there was one instance where I had a mother in the, in the nurse's attendance seat, uh, on one side of the stretcher and she, she did the, the, oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm about to fall out and melted out of the, uh, out of the chair and, uh, onto the, the floor next to the stretcher. And, uh, I told her, I said, get up, get up, get back in the chair. If you're going to interfere with the resuscitation, we will pull over right now and your child will not get to the hospital uh, safely and in a timely fashion. Hold it together and you can we can keep going. And she sucked it up and she she pulled back into the chair and she apologized and said, I'm, I'm sorry. And I said, I, I totally understand. Um, you can do the best for him. Hold his hand. Talk to him while we work. And, and that's all it took. Just a stern, stern word and, and, and telling her to, to, to pull it together. And she did. Uh, so that's the only instance I've had where, where I even came close. And um, I, I'm confident enough in my ability to talk to people that I can spot the ones that I can't talk to uh, and talk to the ones that I can uh, pretty accurately before they ever get in the back of the rig. Yeah, I think that's interesting stuff. One of the things that I would add to the, the development uh, inside the organization is I think we have to change the culture as well. It, it, yes. it seems that there's a disconnect between, uh, and not everyone, of course, but with knowledge, uh, compassion, and execution. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, one of the things that I used to talk about all the time is that our job is to deliver patient care to no matter who it is mm-hmm. to the same quality. I don't care if they're white, if they're black, if they're rich, if they're poor, if they have a home, if they don't have a home, if they smell, everybody gets that same type of care. And it seems that yeah. there's a disconnect where we are judgmental with the patients that we need to take care of inside uh, inside our organizations. And one of the things that I think we need to be able to do is develop programs that will allow for critical thinking, that will allow for problem solving, that will ensure that all of the skills that we have are strengths, ensure that mm-hmm. all the knowledge that we have is increased. One of my biggest pet peeves, uh, especially from the leadership world, is that we hire people with a set of skills and we hire people with a set of knowledge and we look for that unicorn uh, of a great paramedic that we're going to bring into our organization and think they have the miracle dust that's going to transform our organization into the best organization that I can be only for them to get into the organization and be in a culture that is less than um, uh, appetizing for success. Okay. So I think that one of the things that we've got to be able to look at is organizations have visions of success. This is what we want to attain. They don't work the vision. They're just books that, uh, or statements that sit in books on shelves that gather dust. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting off on a little soapbox here. And I love to ask leaders who has a vision statement and they raise their hand. And the next statement really chills them when I say, who can come up here and recite it for me. Um, (laughs) But the, the point I want to make here is that Um, We need to be able to develop the culture of an organization that is helping the workforce grow to their next level. We've got to get away from this ego. I've been saying for a long time, uh, Kelly, tongue in cheek that I don't know if you know this, but EMS is a very egotistical business, but it's the egotism that keeps us from asking the questions why, because we don't know, we don't want to look like we don't know what we're talking about in front of our peers. If you know everything there is to know about EMS, raise your hand. I don't. Kelly doesn't. A lot of us who realize I'm waving my hands in the air like I just don't care. That's right. And uh, (laughs) but the point I'm trying to make is, from an organizational standpoint, we've got to be able to ensure that we are teaching, that we are growing, and that we are taking the initial knowledge and the initial skills and the initial abilities that our workforce comes into our organization with. And for our vision to become successful, we've got to make sure that the workforce is successful. Mm -hmm. If the workforce isn't successful in delivering the highest quality of patient care because we've failed to bring them from point A to point B in their professional and personal development, we're going to fail every single time we touch a patient. Yes, you are. And, and, and the, the best way, the, the way to grow the best leaders and the best medics is to grow your own. And you mentioned it before, everyone's looking for the unicorn. You can't hire enough stellar paramedics uh, to turn around the culture at your agency. Just can't happen. You can't hire enough good people that will somehow magically elevate the level of care overall that you provide and 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 help people's attitudes those people they may exist but but you can't hire enough of them to make a difference at your agency what you can do on the other hand is is change the culture of your agency and and empower people within the agency to grow and and when you hire new people you don't have to look for the unicorn as nancy puts it hire for attitude train for ability 
if you give them a receptive and, and welcoming environment uh, and a, a healthy culture in which to grow, you're going to grow great paramedics on your own. And, and that sort of thing uh, is what will lead to, to stellar care and, and the kind of care that we're talking about here in, in, in pediatric arrest resuscitation, uh, how we've been doing it wrong. So if we had to take away just a, a few takeaways from these, uh, these two articles, backed up by a, a good deal of research and citations, it's that on-scene resuscitation is beneficial for pediatric patients. We need to be doing more of it. We need to abandon the scoop and run. If not necessarily a minimum uh, time spent on scene, then a minimum set of interventions performed on scene before we stop. Uh, all the things that make that practice true for par uh, for adults is also true for pediatrics. We need to examine some of the interventions that we do uh, and realize that some of the interventions that we do that are, have been called into question in adults, for example, epinephrine, therapeutic hypothermia, uh, trauma resuscitation, those sorts of things, are also issues in pediatric care. And the last thing we need to do is to stop fostering the mentality that pediatric patients are different. We know that they have different dosages and physiologically they may be a bit different, but they're not so different that you have to employ an entirely new skill set to treat them. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. How well does your agency handle pediatric arrests? What would you do differently about your agency handling these sorts of calls? We'd love to hear your thoughts at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.